welcome to episode 1307 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan, live in Las Vegas for the MLB Winter Meetings. Hello, Jeff. Is this live? You're recording this. You're live at this moment. It's not live when people are listening, but... You're in a large hotel, I would assume, at this moment. You've been brushing elbows with baseball people. You all just got there. The winter meetings have not officially started until the week gets started. But would you expect, we haven't seen any major moves being made for the past few days, which has been nice of baseball teams not to overload us. Would you expect this to be a busy meetings to the extent that we can forecast that, given that we've just seen a whole bunch of moves happen? Is this going to be like the time when we actually see some movement with Machado and Harper? I don't expect the Harper's sweepstakes to move quickly at all. I mean, obviously stuff is is, is happening probably on a regular basis, forces in, in connection with people, but I think the Harper sweepstakes is going to last a very long time. I think it's going to be a classic Boris free agent pursuit, high-profile free agent pursuit, where... You know, Scott Boris has been preparing for Bryce Harper's free agency for probably five or six years now, and he doesn't want to yeah. blow it. Uh, I think, though, based on, I want to make clear, based on absolutely nothing, I think that the Manny Machado sweepstakes could move pretty quickly. I wouldn't be shocked, again, based on nothing, I wouldn't be shocked to see him sign this week, just because I think that he's going to want to get that money. There's a lot of interest that's already out there. It's not going to take forever like like Harper. It's a different agency. And I think that Machado probably knows that Harper is going to wait until he signs. Now, I don't think that that is necessarily a reason to, to sign first, but I would expect Machado to to move quicker. And if you look at the market, it's it's been good of baseball. I've appreciated them providing content and being so busy for the previous weeks or mm-hmm. so. But you look now and you know, the, the Diamondbacks have a little more shedding to do. The Mariners might have a little more shedding to do. But there are teams like the Reds who have been just rumored to make some sort of big pitching splash. And that, that could happen this week. The Padres are probably overdue for some kind of splash. Brody Van Wagenen seems like he wants to do something that's dramatic because it's already been so long since he made his most dramatic <laughs> splash. And there's a lot of movement. I don't I don't know how, how much you can project to happen within the next four days because ultimately the end of the winter meetings is not a deadline for anybody. It's just mm-hmm. a day that you go back and, and travel. But I do think that as much as this is just an antiquated and, and almost entirely useless event, I, I do think that just knowing that everyone leaves on Thursday, that artificial deadline probably does sort of take on a more substantive feel where teams think like, you know what, it would be nice to have some business completed by then because, you know, then you start getting close to Christmas and New Year's and, and things shut down. So I uh, <laughs> I think that I have now taken about a minute and a half to say I don't know what the week is going to be like, but there is a lot of action left to happen, and I think there are a lot of trades left to happen, and I think trades mm-hmm. take place quicker than free agency does. Yeah, we could see a, one of the Cleveland pitchers traded. Perhaps it seems almost inevitable that Kluber or Bauer will be going somewhere, some when. Don't know if that will be this week, but... There will be some moves made, and when they are made, we will talk about them, and you will blog about them in a giant room with a bunch of other bloggers who have gathered in a room to blog together. This is so dumb. This is the dumbest thing that we do. I know, like, there are certain events and and meetings that have to take place at the winter meetings, and it makes sense that people would all get together because there there mm-hmm. there are certain yeah, things that happen. It's at the an winter industry meeting. trade show. All of the minor league stuff yeah. happens, and various vendors and you know data providers and technology manufacturers equipment makers they're all there but writers they're just kind of there to 
hobnob, which is and fine. The but. teams don't even really need to be here, not to the extent that they are. I mean, the people already travel for conferences throughout the year if you if you work for a team. But like the eighty years ago, I don't think we really need to go over this all again. We probably talked about this last year, but like teams teams just kind of huddle in their suites, and so everybody gets together in the same resort so that they can just continue texting one another like they do all the time elsewhere. So it's just mm-hmm. it's an absurdity. It's disruptive. It's probably hell to plan. Although I don't know, maybe this helps like the traveling secretary justify their job in the winter because otherwise it's not a whole lot else to do. But this is a dumb event. I do worse work when I'm here than I do from home. I only come here because it, it's good to see coworkers every so often. But mm-hmm. outside of that, my work product is worse. I think most people's work product is worse being here. The teams don't want to be here because they just text with everybody anyway. This is all dumb and it hasn't even started yet well i look forward to reading your subpar posts over the next few days so we have two guests lined up for this episode the first is a fellow fan graphs writer who is also in las vegas with you eric Longenhagen. he will be joining us in just a few minutes to tell us about kyler murray who won the Heisman Trophy this weekend and was drafted in the first round, ninth overall pick by the Oakland A's this year. And so now is facing some possible multi-sport future. He is committed to baseball for now, but no one knows exactly what will happen. Eric will tell us how he projects as a baseball player and a football player and possibly a baseball and football player. Then on a much sadder and more somber note, we will be talking to Octavio Hernandez, who is a former Venezuelan journalist. Well, he is a a current Venezuelan who is no longer a journalist, but he will be joining us to talk about the tragic killings of Luis Valbuena and Jose Castillo last week in the Venezuelan Winter League and just the general state of baseball and Venezuela, which is not good, spoiler, but Octavio will tell us about that and about how he has fled the country personally just because of the state of politics and violence and lawlessness there. Before we get to our two guests, one quick thing that I don't know whether you have even noticed because you are traveling and busy and because you are not a Hall of Fame person under any circumstances. When I want to talk about the Hall of Fame briefly, I wait till you are indisposed somehow and then I sneak Jay Jaffe onto the podcast and talk to him myself. But we barely spent any time talking about Harold Baines when we spoke a couple weeks ago because whoever thought that Harold Baines was about to be a Hall of Famer, Harold Baines is now a Baseball Hall of Famer or will be when he is inducted. He has now been kind of ushered in via the side door along with Lee Smith, which is a little less surprising, but the Today's Game ballot, which is basically the new incarnation of the Veterans Committee, has elected both of these guys. Smith, you know, whatever, he's a closer. He had lots of saves. He was the all-time saves leader when he retired. He doesn't stack up all that well, I don't think, to some of the best closers who are already in, but he was probably the best of the candidates just compared to his peers. But Harold Baines, I mean, I'm not a guy who cares as much as many people do about the Hall of Fame either, but when I saw that news, it was almost like, I briefly became unmoored from reality and had to like (laughs) check my surroundings and make sure that up was still up and down was still down because Harold Baines 
is a Hall of Famer now. And it's like, as soon as that news is announced, he's just, he's in the Hall of Fame. Like, it's not even like maybe he will be. No, he's just, he's a Hall of Famer now. And that's that. And we just have to get used to this new world in which Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer. I don't know what to make of it. I don't have, okay. <laughs> we have the same thing to make of it, right? And what we make of it is this is, this is done. Right. That's that's let's just put it let's just put it out there. Harold yeah. Baines, according to Fangraphs, is worth 38 wins above replacement over his career. According to Baseball Reference, he was worth 39 wins above replacement over his career. If you double that, then he would have been a capable Hall of Famer. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, we don't need to like relitigate the entire Harold Baines case, such as it is. I wouldn't have thought that anyone what would be making the a case. Harold Baines case? He batted know. a lot. He played until yes, he was he 42. And when you play until yeah. you're 42, you accrue a lot of high numbers that make it seem mm-hmm. like you did more than you did. So if if there is any up, well, <laughs> if there's any upside, the upside for this is good news for Harold Baines and the yes. entire Baines family. But also this, I don't think that Edgar Martinez was really in any question now that he's in the right. last year of his eligibility, at least through the front door, because it turns out the back door is wide open and unlocked, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it makes absolutely no sense to have a Hall of Fame with Harold Baines in it and Edgar Martinez not in it. But like, <laughs> if you open the door for Harold Baines, does that mean Omar Vizquel is going to be Hall of Famer? And just where is, I, in my head, I would use like 65 or so wins above replacement as sort of a threshold. Of course, there's more to making the Hall of Fame than that, but that was my own cutoff. And mm-hmm. Harold Baines falls short of that by like so <laughs> like much. A, a good career short <laughs> yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. Like what is what is Josh Donaldson been worth in his career? I haven't looked this up, so let's just let's just find out. Josh Donaldson in his career has been worth according to Fangraphs 37. He's been worth Harold Baines's career. And Josh Donaldson yeah, was a late well. bloomer who still has a career to go. Yeah, I mean, Josh Donaldson has been a better baseball player than Harold Baines ever was, obviously. I I mean, I don't really—it's tough in these situations because, like, I don't want to just pile on Harold Baines' career. Like, he had a nice career and, you know, six-time All-Star, and he played for 22 years. And by all accounts, most accounts, he's a nice guy, and, I mean, I'm sure he's happy and— no one really <laughs> suffers from this. Like he gets to have a nice day and Harold Baines fans are happy. And I don't know, the rest of us can just get used to it and probably shouldn't let it affect our lives. But it's like, I don't want to be in the position of just mocking Harold Baines's career because it was way better than almost all careers. But man, it was not a Hall of Fame career. And I just, I don't know. This is like, you know, I'm sure that he's not, the worst person in the Hall of Fame, the worst player. He's certainly not the worst person. They're terrible people, but worst player even. But it's been a while. Like I just sent a message to Jay Jaffe a little bit, and if he answers, I will update at the end of the episode. But I was wondering when the last time like a non-reliever who was this far below the Jaws baseline at his position was elected, and it seems like it's been a while because this is like an old-school veterans committee just like Frankie Frisch just putting his old teammates in in the 30s or something kind of pick like this is almost an archaic kind of selection Harold Baines okay he had one season in his entire career that was worth more than four wins above replacement that's like one let's say very good season and in fact we we don't even need to make this statistical right because here's here are five numbers i am happy to share with you and with the listening audience harold baines of course was on the hall of fame ballot he uh, he had his first year in 2007 
you got 5.3% of the vote. If you get less than 5%, you're off the ballot. 5.3%. The next year, 5.2%. The next year, 5.9%. Wait. The next year, 6.1%. He's getting momentum. The next yeah. year, 4.8%. He <laughs> fell off the ballot. Five years on the ballot, Harold Baines fell off. He never got 7%. <laughs> Of the yeah. vote. And now he got at least 12 out of 16 votes from whoever the hell is on the Today's <laughs> Game ballot voting committee. I don't think yeah. Harold Baines is listening to this podcast, but if the voters are listening to this podcast, you did a bad job. <laughs> yeah. As Jay pointed out on Twitter, three of the people on that committee, Pat Gillick, Tony LaRussa, Jerry Reinsdorf, were closely connected to Harold Baines's career, ah. which is maybe not a coincidence. He got 12 votes and Smith got all 16 votes, unanimous selection of Lee Smith. I mean, so many of the selections for the Hall of Fame, like people criticize the writers' selections and non-selections, and sure, they have put some probably undeserving players in and certainly have snubbed some deserving players, but I would say that the vast majority of the just egregious Hall of Fame picks and inclusions are via the Veterans Committee and just, you know, people who played with these guys and like these guys just kind of just getting them in once the writers have already passed them over. And it's just a weird, I mean... I understand why you would want kind of a second way for people to get in, maybe if the perception of their career changes dramatically years later, but this is just not improving the caliber of player in the Hall of Fame. And I mean, during his career, I don't think anyone thought of Harold Baines as a Hall of Famer. His highest MVP finish was ninth one time and just was never just a good above average player like had a lot of longevity, you know, just solid, solid player. But by Jaws, he is uh, 74th all time among right fielders. And uh, I mean, Jaws classifies you based on where you played most of your games. And so Harold Baines is in right field. Of course, he DH'd a whole lot. Here's just a, a partial list of players ahead of Harold Baines on the Jaws list. Number 72, Nelson Cruz. Number 71, Shinsu Chu. <laughs> better, more deserving by Jaws than Harold Baines, Brian Jordan, who we're uh, about to talk about briefly with Eric. I, I just, a lot of names. I mean, Paul O'Neill, I, I liked Paul O'Neill as much as the next guy and more than most people probably did, but not a Hall of Famer. Mookie Betts, 56 on that list, way above Harold Baines already as a as a Hall of Fame candidate. Jose Bautista is uh, way above, I mean, Tim Salmon, 51. It's just, it's really, I can't believe that Harold Baines is in the Hall of Fame. Harold Baines, I so what I said earlier was that Harold Baines had one season in his career where he was worth at least four wins above replacement. I should also say he's had two seasons in his career where he was worth at least three wins above replacement, which <laughs> ties him for 947th place all time. There are... I mean, I I could I don't know if it's better to list off players who have had other players who have had two seasons at least that good, or maybe other players who have had three. But like Logan Forsythe has had two seasons of at least three wins above replacement. Gerardo Parra, Alberto Callaspo, one of the Chris Youngs. I don't know which one I'm looking at. Probably the outfield version. Adam Lind, possible baby. Powder, farter, <laughs> Adam Lind, Kurt Suzuki, Marco Scudero, Chris Ionetimate, Nick Marcakis, Andre Ethier, Billy Butler, who is playing <laughs> softball in Idaho and killing it, has had as many seasons above three wins of a replacement as Harold Baines. And of course, this is like a longevity 
pick and a nepotism pick more than it is a peak of his career pick, but this is stupid. And as much as it would be easy to just be here and complain about Lee Smith, at least Lee Smith like did one thing a lot that was mm-hmm. great. The one thing Harold Baines did a lot was play. And that's yeah. not that's not enough, unless it is enough, in which case, <laughs> congratulations, Omar Vizquel, on your unanimous appointment <laughs> to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Harold Baines has exactly the same career war at baseball reference as Maglio Ordonez, and Ordonez had a, a higher peak, so Ordonez has a, a way better jaw score than Harold Baines did. I don't know. I mean, Harold Baines, you know, he debuted in 1980 and had enough staying power that I certainly remember Harold Baines, like not just as a player, but as a a good player. And I was not close to being born yet when Harold Baines debuted in the big league. So, I mean, good for him, but man, and I, I really do wonder what the effect of this will be. And you know, like hopefully not a lot other than getting Edgar in because there's just no argument for keeping Edgar out. But you never really want to make the argument like, well, here's the worst player who's in and this guy's better than that guy. So let's put him in. I mean, you could have made that argument probably for Harold Baines if you had wanted to. So I don't encourage that argument. But if anyone is looking at Harold Baines as a Hall of Famer now, it's almost like when some voters just said a few years ago, okay, well, Bud Selig's in, so how are we going to keep PED guys out or not vote for PED guys if the commissioner who presided over the PED era is in? It's almost like that. I mean, I know that some people, some writers have already submitted their ballots for this round of voting, but it's just like the fact that we might have a Hall of Fame with Harold Baines in it and not Mike Messina or Larry Walker or Jim Edmonds or all these clearly superior players to Harold Baines. It it just, I don't know. It's it's not ideal. I hate the argument. I, I understand you can look at this and say, oh, this is precedent setting. So like you were saying, well, if Harold Baines is in, then therefore all these other players have to be in. Omar Vizquel has to be in. Obviously, Edgar Martinez has to be in. And I, I understand it because you're looking for some sort of consistency and you figure, well, you know, that, that shattered it. But, you know, it's like say, uh, without getting political, it's like saying our current situation is precedent setting. It's like, well, as, if we had this as a, as a government, then we, I guess we might as well have more governments like this. It's like, mm-hmm. did, did Jeffrey Loria set a precedent because we had a terrible owner in Major League Baseball? We might as well open the door for more terrible owners. If a bad thing happens, that shouldn't be considered precedent. That should be considered, okay, a bad thing happened. Let's make sure that it is just the anomaly and we don't continue to let bad things happen. Because if you if you allow Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame, like if Harold – Harold what how do you drop the bar it the bar is dropped so low to let in Harold Baines <laughs> that if it dropped by an equivalent amount then right. we're just putting in someone who's like played a baseball game before in the majors and then what does the museum <laughs> even mean anymore so again you know yeah. you, you know what you said 15 minutes ago i don't want to pile on Harold Baines for his career <laughs> and it's all we've been doing but really this is I about know. the voters Harold Baines has a had a good career he had spent a lot of seasons as like an average or above average player good for mm-hmm. him he played until he was 42. I might not even be able to walk when I'm 42. Credit to Harold Baines. Very impressive. He'll get to deliver a speech where he will also probably deliver an average or slightly above average speech that goes on for a very long time. (laughs) And then 5% of people like it, except like a lot of people out of these 16 people enjoy it. Anyway, a bad thing that happens is not by its own existence precedent setting. 
And I understand mm-hmm. that when a bad thing happens, you treat it as a president because the worst thing in the world is inconsistency and hypocrisy. But no, the worst thing in the world is being bad all the time. So as long <laughs> as this doesn't set a precedent, then whatever. We just overlook it just as we've overlooked other bad Hall of Fame picks. But of course, this will set some kind of precedent because the whole thing is stupid. Yeah. I mean, even on the today's game ballot, he wasn't close to being the i mean oral hersheiser is way better than harold baines albert bell was even better than harold baines and he played for like half as long will clark was way better than harold baines i i just i don't know what we're doing here but uh yeah if you were to set the new baseline as harold baines or better (laughs) like the hall of fame would probably like what triple in size or something i mean yeah you could figure that out i'm i'm sure but it it really would i mean this is wow (laughs) i mean what's the what's the line it's like this is the hall of fame not the hall of of very good good, it's like now this is pretty much like the hall of fame good sometimes yeah that's that's what what we've done right yeah the professional hitter hall of fame certainly i mean the (laughs) embodiment of the concept of professional hitter but that is something you say about someone who is not a hall of famer and so you're looking for something nice to say about them that is not hall of famer and uh now he is both a professional hitter and a hall of famer perhaps the first person ever to belong to both of those groups i don't know so yeah congratulations harold after we have just <laughs> disparaged your career i'm i'm happy for you personally i'm uh, not happy for what this says about the the standards of the hall of fame And I guess I will see Harold Baines as he walks to the front of the media room at the Witcher meetings, as usually happens when somebody gets elected into the Hall of Fame by means of some secondary committee. So Mm -hmm. Harold Baines will be there giving some sort of press conference while I'm trying to write about a player who, well, I was going to say a player who's actually good, but that's way too mean. So anyway, (laughs) while I'm trying to focus on something else, Harold Baines, congratulations. You did better than most baseball players did. And I guess these days that's enough. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Eric Longenhagen, followed by another quick break and Octavio Hernandez. Didn't even get the pile on Lee Smith, who is not that great himself. <laughs> yeah, Lee Smith's just skating by here. Just, I mean, I don't even have anything bad to say about Lee Smith because he's being compared to Harold Baines. Oh, man. <laughs> Lee Smith. Saturday, Kyler Murray won the Heisman Trophy, which, as I understand it, is an award that Bo Jackson and Vic Yanovich and Tim Tebow and assorted non-baseball players have won in the past. Kyler Murray is both a baseball player and a football player for now, but he was drafted in the first round this year by the Oakland A's, and so now there's a lot of discussion about where his future lies and what it could look like in either sport or both sports. 
Jeff and I know nothing of Kyler Murray's football career. We know very little about Kyler Murray's baseball career. And so we are joined by Fangrass prospect analyst Eric Loggenhagen, who knows some things about both of those things. Hello, Eric. Hello, guys. How's it going? Going okay. So you wrote about Kyler Murray back in April, I think, before he was drafted by the A's, and it was not clear that he would be or where he would be drafted. Teams weren't sure whether he would end up playing baseball or what. Where do things stand right now? He won the Heisman Trophy. Scott Boris says that he's going to play baseball. Kyler Murray says it would be nice if he could play both. So what do we think is going to happen here and how good could he be? Yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting to see what happens. Uh, I don't have a clean answer for you. Everybody says that the kid loves football and it's just the barrier to entry there is his size. He's a tiny person. Even some of the shorter quarterbacks uh, who have been successful in the NFL are much more physical than Murray's. So, you know, when I wrote about whether he should pick football or baseball back in April, it was on the eve of last year's NFL draft when, uh, you know, Baker Mayfield went first, who's also short, but not small. And Kyler is small. He's like 5'11". I couldn't, I wouldn't believe if he told me he was like over 200 pounds. I just really would not. So, you know, but then again, he has laid waste to Big 12 defenses, right? So he had to perform this fall. Uh, and even when I wrote that article back in April, it was in doubt whether or not he would even be Oklahoma's starter because they have a great uh, underclassman there as well. And Kyler had not performed as a starter before. And uh, so there was some risk during fall practice that Austin Kendrick was going to win the Oklahoma quarterback job. And like, we wouldn't even have had to worry about this. And, uh, you know, the, the Kyler baseball stuff, part of the reason that he was ranked so low or that he was mocked so low on drafts was that there was just uncertainty regarding his decision and that we in the public sphere had no idea what the kid was going to do. And we weren't sure how sure teams were. Oakland presented him with an aggressive enough offer, $5 million bonus that he signed. And the way those bonuses are paid out is in two installments. Uh, There's not a two sport deal anymore. Like there used to be like uh, blue Jays prospect, Anthony Alford signed a two sport contract. He went to Southern Miss and played football and then that didn't work out. And he came back to, uh, to baseball and his bonus by the Blue Jays was paid out like over five years. And he only got most of it once he came back to baseball. But it seems like if Murray does pick football, he's already got two and a half million dollars from the Oakland A's in hand. They may have some sort of legal recourse to recoup that. But, you know, they might also leverage the A's into letting him try to do both because they're not going to get a comp pick if he leaves to go play football because they signed him. They didn't fail to sign. So, you know, it's a, it's the A's are kind of in a tough situation. They don't really have a whole lot of leverage here. Yes, Scott Boris is Murray's agent, and Boris's goal is to maximize Kyler's earning power, and playing two sports is absolutely that. We're not at a point anymore where we're weighing football or baseball. You know, he's got most of the baseball money in hand. He's going to make very little money playing baseball as far as, like, salary is concerned. I think my article lays it out. It's like a few thousand dollars more per month every year into his minor league career. And if he makes the majors after four years, then it's like, you know, whatever he got for the bonus, which is $5 million plus, like, another couple hundred thousand dollars. And I think the break-even point for that in the football draft is, like, somewhere in the first, second round like range so but obviously he's going to be making like the pay structures football is very different so i don't know what's going to happen but um 
there's reason to be skeptical of him as a football prospect because of his size. And then on the baseball field, there's some uncertainty because he hasn't played very much. You know, as an underclassman, he barely played because he was transferring and the rules barred him from playing. And, you know, like even in high school, his senior year of high school, all he did was DH because he had a shoulder issue. He didn't play shortstop as a senior in high school and now has moved to center field. And so he's fairly new there as well. And, but from a talent perspective, like this is the sort of athlete that baseball slam dunk should like be doing whatever it can to mm-hmm. coax him to play baseball. And they really should be doing it financially. It should not have been a question for Kyler Murray, what he was going to do. You know, a top, the fact that a top 10 talent in baseball, uh, in a baseball draft might have a decision to make, you know, if he's a second rounder in the NFL is like, that's, that's not great for baseball. It's not a great look. And this is just sort of the situation that the, uh, you know, the players union and the owners have put the, the talent acquisition situation in because they don't want to pay for amateur talent. And the NFL is a little bit more willing to. And so now this is the discussion we're having. So talk to me like I'm an idiot because I don't remember that much about Bo Jackson. I don't remember that much about Brian Jordan, Deion Sanders, etc. What are the logistics of, of playing baseball and football, given that obviously when you get to like August and September and then October, there there's a lot of seasonal overlap. Right. And with those guys, it varies. I mean, the Bo Jackson stories are ridiculous because, I mean, in my opinion, that's the greatest athlete in the history of our country. But Bo played football, as he put it, as a hobby. And the baseball season would end and Bo would show up. The you know, Oakland season would have begun. And then it would take Bo a couple of weeks to get into football shape. And then he'd be better than Marcus Allen. So, you know, as a quarterback, it's a little different because there is a heavier intellectual burden than, you know, Dion would just show up and cover people. So it was a little bit different for, for prime. And, you know, Dion, who was about Kyler Murray's size, didn't have to tackle anybody. And if you watch Dion Sanders highlights, it's clear that he didn't want to. So yeah, like the logistics of it are bizarre. It's been a long time since anybody has done it. And both sports have, have changed, especially like football with, preseason and all the install that's going on as far as offensive schemes goes, especially in his first year, uh, it could complicate things. I think that that the overlap there in the fall is a huge barrier. Obviously, uh, as far as minor league baseball is concerned, the season ends at the end of August. So in theory, Kyler could be ready sooner now than he would if you were a big leaguer. Uh, to go transition and play football. And maybe that situation is uh, is actually pretty good to try both for a little while. And Kyler probably comes into camp here in Mesa in February, March, and then you know, maybe they let him wrap up his season at Beloit or Stockton a little early to go play in the NFL somewhere. I suppose that's possible. But the intellectual component, especially for a quarterback, I think makes the barrier for him doing both more difficult to to cross. Yeah. And there are a couple schools of thought on it. You know, Bo Jackson is a legend in part because he did both. But if he had done only one, if he had focused on baseball exclusively, odds are he would have been a much better baseball player. I mean, he was a a pretty good baseball player at times, but clearly more of a just, you know, he's a physical god, of course, and so he could just kind of compensate for a lack of experience, but he was sort of a raw player in a lot of ways, and there's no telling how good he would have been if he had focused on both. On the other hand, it's just so incredibly rare and now basically unheard of for someone to do that that in terms of just being a legend, you're probably guaranteed that if you do it at all. I mean, I don't know. Mark Hendrickson's not a legend, I guess, for playing 
basketball and baseball, but that's a little bit different. So I don't know. Kyler Murray is not quite the just physical person that Bo Jackson was. I mean, he recreated Bo Jackson's iconic Nike photo and, you know, he looks good in black and white with just the shoulder pads and the bat over his shoulders, but it's just not quite the same. Like, I don't know whether Kyler Murray is going to produce the same kind of incredible highlights that we all still talk about with Bo Jackson decades later. Yeah, I was lucky enough to speak with a gentleman who was the Raiders special teams coach during Bo's tenure with Oakland because the special teams coach also coached J.P. Crawford's father. And I was writing about like physical projection at the time and how to do it and looking at parents and then talked to, you know, about uh, athletic parents. And so I t- ended up talking to this guy, mostly about J.P. Crawford's dad, who played like uh, Division One ball at Iowa State and then you know, like in the Canadian League and stuff. Uh, but he'd been a special teams coach all over the place, uh, mostly under Pete Carroll at various spots for a long time. And he was with the Raiders uh, while Bo was there. And like we, our conversation went much longer than I expected. Like half of it was just on Bo and like what it was like to be around somebody like that. And it is like a different thing. It's not, I don't think you can compare anyone to Bo Jackson as like a physical athletic entity. And I know Kyler Murray's really special. But, you know, if, you, if anyone's watched football this century, like we've kind of seen this type of guy before, whether it's Vic or some of the lesser uh, college types who didn't work out in the NFL. Like it's, it's hard for this type of quarterback to pan out in the NFL. It's hard for any quarterback to pan out in the NFL. So I think that, that he and, and the Boris group have probably discussed the avenues and when is the right time to bail on either avenue, if it's clear, that's not going to work out. So I think they're probably going to try to toe the line for a while until they reach a point of no return with either board, whether that's uh, in success or failure. Like if Kyler goes out to Beloit, if he's in low A and he can't hit, like if he's running like a 40% strikeout rate or something like that, it's probably not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if that pitching is theoretically worse than what he faced in the Big 12 last year. And so that should be a sign that like this, there's something that's not going to click here. And maybe at that point, the, his performance is so extremely bad that they kind of know, okay, this isn't going to work out. And then conversely, like on the football field, the way you find out that that's not going to work is potentially catastrophic for like his body. You know, just think about, think about how, how injury prone Teddy Bridgewater has been. And Bridgewater is like six, two, he's just skinny, you know? And like, it's, it's, it's hard to have 300 pound dudes who run like short shuttles under four seconds falling on you. Like, it sucks. So I know people in baseball who care a lot about football, who are, you know, talent evaluators in baseball who can't turn that switch off when they're watching football, who don't think he has a prayer in the NFL, but they're not exactly, they're very biased. Like everyone wants to see this kid play baseball, see what it would be like if he did it right. Right. Or well, excuse me. And yeah, I think I know that's the camp I fall in and, I hope that, that there's a decision made on it at some point, but I don't anticipate there one to be uh, to be made anytime soon. NFL draft is in April, folks. 
Yeah. So I guess the the last thing I wanted to ask you, just in 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 your own opinion, of course, we have these precedents from from the '80s, the '90s, and and even before that. But now we talk so much about how baseball players have have become specialized, and I'm sure all the same things have been happening in football. That everybody, in order to be good now, you just have to dedicate yourself to being good at that more than probably ever before in terms of being a professional athlete. So. Just sort of in in your opinion, do you think that it, it would be realistic for a Kyler Murray to be able to be at least an average player in both sports? Ah, uh, man, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Like even some of the more recent guys who have tried something like this are gone from one to the other. Like I do think, especially baseball is so unforgiving of technical rust. You know, if you haven't seen a good curveball for a while, it might. I don't know if you can reclaim that you know, your ability to identify and square that pitch up. I don't know what it's like to be in center field and not have taken fly balls out there for an extended period of time and then come back to it. So I'm very skeptical. You know, Drew Henson couldn't do it. I don't think he's quite the athlete that Kyler Murray was. You know, it's like the first guy who comes to mind when I'm like, okay, who in the last X amount of years has tried anything kind of like this? And so, no, I don't think so. But if you were able to do that, that would be so incredible. Maybe as like a gadget player in the NFL and, an, and a good everyday baseball player, that could work. I don't know if quarterback timeshares are necessarily a thing that NFL teams are super stoked on. But perhaps, yeah, like you can limit the, what the kid has to carry from like a playbook standpoint. You limit the physical toll on his body. Like there maybe there are ways where he's effective in both sports. But like to put him on the quarterback continuum in like the, the 20 to 10 range, if you're lining up all the quarterbacks, and think that he's going to be like a two, three win baseball player like that, that seems pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny. I've never seen Kyler Murray perform any physical feat, whether in baseball or football, but suddenly I want him. I'm like all tribal about baseball getting this guy who I've never seen. But hey, if it's uh, us versus football, I want baseball to get the guy. So I hope that works out. I guess, uh, you know, in the wake of his Heisman win, he has already had his terrible teenage tweets homophobic tweets that he sent years ago when he was 14 or so dredged up and he has apologized for those so i I guess he would fit in in baseball in that respect unfortunately he's he's already got that out of the way yeah let's hope that the kid can grow intellectually and morally because he's not going to grow physically so (laughs) yeah all right well thank you for giving us a primer on a player we know very little about but wanted to know more about and now we do so thank you very much eric Oh, my pleasure, guys. Yeah, if you, I know Kylie got a lot of video of Kyler playing in Orlando and elsewhere during the spring before the draft. So mm-hmm. if you, if you want to see, listeners want to see what this is like, watch this guy play baseball. It's on the Fangraphs YouTube page somewhere. You can just Google Kyler Murray Fangraphs video. It comes up. I will link to it. All right. Thank you, Eric. See you guys. Thank you. Okay, we will take one more quick break, and then we will be right back with Octavio Hernandez to talk about baseball in Venezuela. A cause and effect, the rejoice and regret. Thursday night, we all got some sad and tragic news, which was that two baseball players we remember well from the majors, Luis Valbuena and Jose Castillo, 
We're killed in Venezuela, coming back from a game in the Venezuelan Winter League. At first, we assumed it was an accident, and that was sad itself, obviously, but then we learned that there was something more nefarious at work and that this was caused by bandits, that they were killed on purpose, that they were robbed. It is another instance of violence and tragedy in Venezuela affecting baseball. And so to talk about this and the response and what the future looks like, we are joined now by Octavio Hernandez, who currently is in Mexico City, where he is the head of the advanced metrics department for the Diablos Rojos in the Mexican League. But prior to that, he was in Venezuela. He is Venezuelan. He covered Venezuelan baseball as a beat writer for Leader. And he was also an assistant GM for the Leones del Caracas in the Venezuelan Winter League for two years. That was a long intro. Hello, Octavio. <laughs> Hi, Ben. How are you? It's a pleasure. It's a, it's really an honor to be here, man. <laughs> yeah, I we talk to you on Twitter all the time. We've mentioned you on the show. You've been on the Ringer MLB show with me before, but yeah. we uh, are having you on here, and unfortunately, under sad circumstances. So. Tell us a little bit. Obviously, you are not currently in Venezuela, but you are connected to Venezuela, Venezuelan baseball. What has the response been to the murders of Valbuena and Castillo? This is basically the worst tragedy in the 72 years of history of this league. We have had players killed in the past because of insecurity, because of thugs, but never two guys in the same day with this kind of careers. I mean, Jose Castillo, probably you, you guys don't know this because you're not so familiar with the Venezuelan league. Luis Valbuena had the, the better career. He, he was on MLB. Uh, he actually, he was playing without the need of playing over there in Venezuela. I mean, he, he has had like uh, 30 million career earnings on MLB, but Jose Castillo is even bigger in Venezuela. He could, you could say he's mm. one of the, Three best hitters in the history of, of the game. First of all, you know, in the history of our of, of that league. First, you could say is Victor Lavalillo. Second, you could say is uh, Robert Perez. I don't know if you remember that guy. Uh, he played with, with the Toronto Blue Jays in the early 90s, I believe. Mm-hmm. A couple of years. And I believe the third best hitter in in this league, in the history of the, uh, of the league, could be really... Uh, Jose Castillo, his nickname was, is, I believe, because his nickname hasn't disappeared, it was the axe, El Hacha. He's had this, like, music around, this song around him that, I mean, he was, he basically was a great hitter, loved by every single one of the, of the fans that saw him, no matter if this fan was a fan of uh, a rival team. Everyone knew that this guy was just amazing, that he probably, with with discipline, with a little bit of discipline in his, in his life, could have been a really good ball player on MLB. Instead, he had a short career on, on MLB, especially, especially with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Mm-hmm. But he dedicated himself to play every single winter over there in in Venezuela, and he was beloved. He he had he was thirty eight years old, respected by all, admired by all the fans, and he, it's a tremendous loss. It's uh, in Venezuela the day after this 
horrible tragedy. They didn't play. And the day after that, they didn't play again because basically all the, the, the majority of the players in the league, they weren't ready because they were in mourn. It's just too great of a shock to everyone. Is it understood that these two players were targeted in particular, or was this just a random accident that happened to, to end up targeting them? No, it's a random. I believe, I mean, I don't have proof about that, mm-hmm. but anyone that have seen or lived the conditions of our roads and the conditions of our of our personal security when you're traveling on, on those roads, you can expect this this to happen. I mean, this is not, this is not the first time that, that this type of things occur in our roads. This is a, a style that road pirates use to slow down cars and after they get trashed, well, they, they rob them. And basically that's what, what happened. Whoever did this, they ended up plundering the car and stealing whatever was in, in in the car and basically basically because of that the authorities a day after they end up with a couple of suspects that had the belongings of this of these two players mm-hmm. actually it wasn't i don't know if you if you read that because of course the, all the headlines are destined to Jose Castillo and Luis Valbuena but they weren't alone in in the car Mm-hmm. There were four people in the car. Carlos Rivero, former third base from the Red Sox, I believe, he was in the in the in, in the front seat of the car, but he he ended up with small injuries, but alive, basically because he was using a seatbelt. And the the chauffeur, all he also well, he saved his life basically because he was saving the seatbelt. He was using the seatbelt. The casualties occurred. For the two guys that were in the back seat of the car, and they weren't using the the seatbelt. It's just well, it's, it's not as common to use seatbelts in in Venezuela, especially if you're sitting in the back seat of the car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was a comment by the league president who said that he's considering banning players from traveling in their own cars to and from games because if they had been on the team bus. This wouldn't have happened. So what measures do teams take to try to keep their players safe? And you know about this because you were an assistant GM and, and you helped organize travel at that time. Yeah, I mean, th- those remarks ignited a lot, of, uh, a lot of heat from the players against the president of the league. Because he, what he's saying is like political in, politically incorrect because he's saying, well, Maybe if he was, they, they weren't in this private car, maybe they were alive. Well, yes, of course, but that's not the main issue. The main issue here is they, they weren't doing anything wrong. They just, they, they were just traveling in a, uh, in a private car, uh, trying to get faster to the, de- the, to their destiny. They played in Caracas. They ended up that game around, I don't know, 1130, 12 a.m. at night. And they decided to travel privately to Barquisimeto, who's uh, it's a it's a city around four or five hours away. If you use a, a private car, you could do that trip in around four hours. If you use a, a bus, you will do that trip around 
you will take like six hours to complete that trip because it's, it's slower. So basically the main issue here, it's not they did anything wrong like traveling by, the, by themselves. The main issue here is the national conditions and the risk that involves specifically traveling when you, you are out of the flock, <laughs> when you are alone, that those conditions are inhumane, are, are just, uh, let me, let me explain you a, a little bit. I mean, ball players, they play in Venezuela in a bubble. They get really, they get special measures of security so they can play and forget about the crisis that is living in Venezuela. What happened that night is that the bubble just burst. Uh, teams can do certain amount of things, but they can't avoid the main conditions in that the, the Venezuelan baseball league plays. And the main condition is like, well, you play in Venezuela, and Venezuela is a really dangerous city, a really dangerous country. So, I mean, I understand the remarks of the president, but I think they were taken a little bit out of context because they weren't doing anything wrong. Then again, anyone who plays in Venezuela have to know that you have to take special measures to avoid being involved in this in this kind of situations and they didn't but it's not their fault because they're from Venezuela you know they they don't have this chip that an american player has uh or a foreign player has that it's basically saying to them venezuela's really is really dangerous you have to be very careful of course of course they know that venezuela is very dangerous but it's their turf it's their country, and they're going to to behave like it's their country, and they're gonna start up a, a a car. They're going and they're going to take this private cars to get to a city as fast as as they can because they want to spend as much as as much time as they can with their families. So it's really it's really a tough decision. I mean. I understand the remarks. Then again, it's just the players don't have the fault. The league doesn't have the fault. Their main reason that this is happening is because Venezuela is a lawless state that has roads like um, like Mad Max roads. It's mm -hmm. just, and I mean, forgive me if I get a little bit emotional because, but I'm I'm trying to like to picture something that it's just not rare i've seen this for the last 10 years in my country and because it happened to a couple of stars baseball stars well now it's important to the world right you had mentioned earlier that they have identified two suspects but you also just referred to venezuela as a as a lawless state it's maybe not the most important thing at this moment but what what is the amount of faith that the the perpetrators here are going to be able to be found and, and brought to justice no but the thing is like because every everyone in the baseball community is trying to basically screaming to the to the government we want justice well, basically, they move and they say, okay, let's bring them justice. Let's bring them 
let's hunt down this these two three guys that were responsible for for this and uh, tell the world well at least we have responsibles then again this type of responses from the government only occurred when the victims are important to the world and it's heartbreaking to say 99% of the country it's not important because when 99% of the of the victims in Venezuela uh, go down the drain using this technique there's there aren't thousands of tweets hundreds of newspaper around the, the globe basically headlining this tragedy this is happening only because it was Jose Castillo and Luis Valbuena, two, two guys that were beloved in, in Venezuela and around the globe, <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the baseball world. Right. And, you know, we've seen players killed in the Dominican over the winter. The conditions of the roads are not great there. You know, sometimes alcohol is involved. There's a little more laxity about that at times. And this was not that. This is completely different, of course. But is that also a concern there, the conditions of the roads, or is it largely a, a crime-related issue? No, it's there are two ghosts that the ghosts that we have to fight in the in the night when you when you travel. I, actually, there's a tweet from Osiguien. Osiguien is right now the manager of Tiburones de la Guaira, and he was alerting on his timeline around a month ago, the bad conditions of the road between Puerto La Cruz and Caracas. This accident didn't occur in that in that road, but then again there there's no there's no road from the first world in, in Venezuela. The roads are really in bad shape. And there's basically it's the only way that the teams have to get their players to another city because the airlines in Venezuela are just uh, there. If if they haven't gone into bankruptcy, <laughs> they have like two planes. So it's really, really difficult to get to establish some sort of plan to transport every single time your players to a city to another using airplanes. So that's why they, they use a lot of buses. Mm -hmm. You look at uh, you look at this year's numbers in the Venezuelan league. There's Harold Ramirez is one of the best hitters. Williams Estadio was there. Alejandro De Aza is there. There are Ronnie Cedeno, Eddie Chavez, Delman Young. There are a number of current or, or recent major league players who still go down to Venezuela to to play winter ball. Obviously, it's a it's a good league. It's a quality league, and most of the time, nothing bad happens. But how much I know major league teams have been moving their facilities out of Venezuela, their their youth academies, and they've been staying out of the country. And how how much more tolerance do you think major league baseball and, and major league players are going to have to to go down to Venezuela when when so little about their their safety and well being can be taken for granted given the, the greater climate? That's that's a good question. I believe uh, if I have to think, I mean, there's there are a lot of players that play in Venezuela because the the pay is good. You have to remember that uh, the Venezuelan players that play a whole season in Double A, Triple A, and, and that maybe were in, in on MLB around two or three years ago, they have to play in Venezuela because if they don't play in Venezuela, being a Venezuelan, 
they they can't play anywhere because of the winter the the Caribbean league settings basically Leones del Caracas, Navegantes del Magallanes, they have the rights over their players. And if they want to play in the Dominican Bowl or the Mexican Bowl, they can't without the permission of the team. So that's that. Second, we are seeing a diminishing participation of the grand prospects. For example, you are seeing in the Dominican League Eloy Jimenez. Uh, you are seeing Fernando Tatis. But you're not seeing Venezuela, Ronald Acuña, or uh, Gleyber Torres. Mm. And the explanation for that, the main uh, explanation for that is, well, basically they don't feel safe. The Yankees don't feel safe telling Gleyber Torres, go ahead and play. The the Braves don't don't feel safe uh, telling Ronald Acuña, go ahead and play. But then again, the league is just a massive part of this creatures of habit <laughs> of, of when I say it's not a I'm not saying this to insult the players but they are creatures of habit they love doing exactly the same every single every single year it's really tough to just to tell them just just don't play there man just don't play there because it doesn't worth it they are used to playing in Venezuela they crave for the their adrenaline for the league and also for the payment so they go ahead and play. Right now, the, the quality of the import players is a little bit under the quality of the import players that uh, the Dominican League usually puts in the, on, on the field. And that's basically because the import players, they, they see the newspapers, they see the tweets, they get informed and they just, no, I'm not going there. Actually, I, I talked to Dustin Geiger around... I don't know, four months ago, we were here in Mexico. And I, and I said to him, do you want to go to Venezuela? And it's like, no, not, not even close. I mean, if you, if you know someone over there in, in the Dominican Bowl, of course, I have a couple offers over here in Mexico, but I'm not interested in Venezuela because they know. Maybe in the future, Jeff, maybe in the, in the I don't know, not distant future, maybe the, there's, there could be an executive order from the, from the government banning MLB to establish economic relationships to Venezuela. It could happen because we are the, the government right now is is a subject of a series of sanctions and maybe in the not too distant future that could just blow the league up and because the US government is telling MLB basically you can't do anything with a with an, an enterprise from from Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And to what extent would you say, I mean, most Venezuelan players who are in the majors, obviously they have made it out and, you know, hopefully they can afford to keep their loved ones relatively safe, but that's certainly not the case for a lot of players. They have friends, they have family who are in danger. And, you know, even if they are not going back to play there over the winter or, or if they do, maybe they can afford to keep themselves safe, but there's still a concern all the time about the state of affairs in your country and mm -hmm. whether everyone you care about is going to be safe. And obviously that is bigger than baseball. So to what extent would you guess that this weighs on the minds of many of the Venezuelan players in the majors during the regular season? So, yes, of course. I mean, these guys are Venezuelans. Most of them, they don't have the luxury to get their families out of Venezuela and into the States. 
And so basically that's a really a huge concern. I mean, I've read a lot of interviews done to Ender Inciarte, to Jose Altuve, that are basically screaming for solutions on this matter because it's not it's something bigger than baseball exactly what 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 you did what you said i know that this these guys are not robots i mean these guys have to be on the news every single day they have twitter accounts they had they had instagram accounts and they know what's happening over the, over there in venezuela and of course they get worried i mean i'm i'm absolutely sure that they have this this eye this part of the this part of their hearts in Venezuela and they're they're working because there there are connections between the ball players and the government. For example, for example, Carlos Guillen, the second baseman from the, the Detroit Detroit Tigers, he has a lot of leverage with the higher power of the government. And I know for a fact that they talk to him for to try to solve this. But then again, this is something bigger than the ball players. This is something that goes that goes far beyond the lack of efficiency from the government trying to stop the insecurity and thugs. This is a, a state policy that is trying to expel every single one of the the people that is not for a matter of speaking, okay with what's happening in Venezuela, just to get it, get them out of Venezuela. And that's why you have millions of people just fleeing the country, just because of the insecurity, because of the economic crisis, because the Venezuelan government doesn't need Venezuelans. They just need oil. They just need gold. They just need diamonds. They just need Coltrane. They don't need Venezuelans over there. So if, if we if we flee the country, go ahead. So... It's just, it's tough. It's tough. There are, at least according to the, the latest numbers I could find, we know that baseball team, major league baseball teams have a, academies in, in like the Dominican Republic, but in, in Venezuela, there are, I'll, I'll read a quote here, there are about 100 substantial privately owned baseball academies in Venezuela, mm-hmm. which is MLB's second most represented country after the Dominican Republic and well ahead of longtime regional powerhouse Cuba. Now, that mm-hmm. being said, by 2002, I think there were 23 major league teams that had their own academies in Venezuela. And according to the last research I could find, there are only four that are still active. The Cubs, the Rays, the Tigers, and the Phillies still run academies in Venezuela. No, I think there's none, but there's I'm, none? I'm not, I think, I, I have to, I, I will uh, confirm that fact after the, the podcast. After this conversation, because <laughs> I wasn't like two months ago in a summit over here in, uh, of the Mexican Bowl, and I had mm-hmm. the pleasure to talk to Arturo Marcano, who's a ESPN collaborator, and he specializes in the the reality of the baseball prospects in Dominican and Venezuela, and he. I'm almost I'm I'm almost 100% sure that he told me that there were non academies right now and it's just it's logical. <laughs> right. So if there are let's let's say I assume then you are correct let's say there are no major league baseball academies remaining mm-hmm. Venezuela clearly has a great talent pipeline there are a lot of as as the article I was reading says Venezuelans are the second most represented country 
in, in Major League Baseball behind the Dominican Republic among Latin American countries. But what hope now do young Venezuelan players have of, of getting developed, learning, getting nutrition, and, and getting noticed? How does a young Venezuelan baseball player hope to succeed now relative to 20 years ago when it was uh, when the doors were much wider open? The doors were, were much wider open, but they weren't as efficient uh, generating MLB players because Venezuela didn't have 20 years ago, a hundred and I don't know, 110 or something like that. MLB players. We had like 10 or 15. Why is that? Well, basically because the development system does not depend on the academy. These guys has, have like, as you said, a hundred or more private academies trying to stash as much of the the talent around the country that they find that they could find and when they turn 16 they sell them to MLB teams and when MLB teams have the rights on these players they take them to Dominican Republic where they have the academies what happened 20 years ago is that those guys didn't have to leave town because the the, the MLB teams already have a, had academies just around the block, and it was let's not safer, just, just more comfortable for Venezuelan prospects to be in their in their native country. Now that doesn't happen; they just get signed at sixteen, and they they get signed, sale delivered to Dominican Republic. So that's that's why the production, the generation of MLB. Venezuelan talent hasn't stopped. In fact, the crisis that Venezuela is living right now is not something new. Venezuela has had problems for the last 10 years. And basically, the middle class is not seeing too much opportunities to evolve as a citizen studying or getting a job. What's happening in Venezuela from the last 15, 15 years it's basically that the parents are telling the, the kids, okay, go ahead, uh, you could you can skip school, I don't care if you graduate, go ahead, go to the academy, at this private academy, at 11 years old, go ahead and only play baseball for three, four, three or four years, and let's just hope that you could sign for 100,000, 150, or $1 million, something like that, to get a lottery ticket out of poverty. This is the system that has been so successful baseball-wise in Dominican Republic, but it's just uh, it's a plague on the society because most of them, most of these kids, these kids, they don't get signed and they don't have any kind of education. They don't have anything, so they become a a, a weight on the society. So they turn sixteen, they don't get signed. What did what what do they do? Well, basically, I don't know, maybe become a thug or something like that. It's just, it's wrong for the society, but it's good for the mining process, the talent mining process that MLB has established in Dominican Republic and Venezuela. So I know that we've been talking about this in a, a baseball context mostly, but is there any prospect of larger change in the country that might solve this baseball-specific issue by addressing things on a national level? No, Ben. That's why I'm here in Mexico. I'm not. I'm hopeless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm 
<laughs> I just fled. I'm bringing my fiance over the the next three months over here to to Mexico, and just just fled the country because there's no hope right now. And it's just it's a nihilistic way of thinking, but it's a realistic way of thinking. There's just no hope right now. It's not a crisis because crises tend to generate changes. What's happening right now in Venezuela is a planned, uh, a demolition plan plan. <laughs> so basically what is happening right now, it's not something that's going to, I believe, change in the, the months to come or the years to come. It has to happen something massive. And I don't see that happening. I guess the last thing I should ask you is how how has been the process of of you fleeing and then you also now trying to move your your fiance up in the next few months how how has it been packing up your life and how how feasible has it been for you to change the country where you and your family are living Yeah well it's it's tough but then again I have family right here I'm right now doing this podcast in the in the apartment of a of a of an aunt that I haven't seen for I don't know 20 years but she has she 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 was a prophet. <laughs> she moved to Mexico in 1999 when it all began. So right now I'm like a refugee over here, but I have I have papers thanks to Diablos Rojas in Mexico. I have a, a job thanks to Diablos Rojas in Mexico, and thanks to uh, Tadeo Varela who who recommended me for this job. And well, trying to survive, trying to to make this situation the best that uh, that I can. Of course, I have all my family over there. It's it's specifically the same situation that the ball players have. They get signed. Maybe they're sixteen and they they really don't know what they are, what they're facing. But when they they are twenty one, twenty two, twenty three, and they work every single year over there in, in in the states, they work. But they know that they're leaving their hearts over there in, in Venezuela because they have. Their parents were there, their brothers were there, and it's just tough. It's just tough. So we have to just keep grinding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we appreciate you coming on and talking about this. I know it's not a fun topic for you or anyone else, and we will have to have you back on another time to talk about something a little less depressing. We can sure. talk about your work in Mexico sometime. We did do an episode, uh, episode 887, about statistics in the Mexican League, but that was a couple of years ago, and I'm sure that things have changed somewhat since then. And maybe we can talk about that and just Williams Estadio and happy subjects next time. But uh, we appreciate you coming on to talk about a tough one. Well, thanks, man. Really, I mean, it's as I said of the record it's tough talking about this but then again any opportunity is good to to talk to you guys because i'm a huge fan i've i've been hearing your podcast for the last i don't know four years so it's an honor so anything that you may need from mexico venezuela dominican republic your guy (laughs) all right and we appreciate you keeping us informed about williams estadio's strikeout list streak and exactly how many at bats he went without striking out good information he only has one he only has one (laughs) and walks jeff jeff uh, yeah so i saw that 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 three those those three walks in in a game i didn't see that that game because that that has to be like i don't know what the hell happened there but if you if you go like a year ago, Astudio has walked, has struck out five times in 420 at bats in Venezuela. 
did you did you see that for 20 i mean it's absolutely horrendous i mean i i, I was trying i, I recently wrote a, a column for a for a friend over there in, in miami uh-huh. and i was trying to like trying to establish parallelisms in venezuela and i mean alberto callaspo had the 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 most similar season he had nine strikeouts nine strikeouts in 182 at bats around I, i believe it was 2000 2005 2006 as you has five over the last two years that's more than 400 at bats this guy's amazing i mean he's a circus freak and i love him <laughs> he, he's, he's the one thing well he's one of the things that brings joy to my life <laughs> yes ours too so just please someone protect William Testadio while he is down there take the team bus wear your seatbelt all lives are precious I want everyone to stay safe but I want an armed guard surrounding William Testadio at all times please so, yeah. alright well you can find Octavio on Twitter at Octavio Leader and again we appreciate your coming on thank you no thank you guys okay that will do it for today thank you for listening and to everyone who joined us on this episode you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and signing up to pledge some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going as have the following five listeners eugene mcmahon bill kirkpatrick Jeremy Peranto, Matt Kapalewski, and Chris Crone. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will try to squeeze in an email show later this week, depending on how busy the winter meetings turn out to be. So please do send us your emails at podcast at fangraphs.com or message us via Patreon. If you are a Patreon supporter, our schedule will be somewhat unpredictable for the rest of this week as Jeff navigates Las Vegas, but we will, as always, talk to you sometime soon. Your love is like a city.